0: Oyster Oyster, the main concept first and foremost is always being a sustainable restaurant, a restaurant that's thinking about permanence and kind of a long path. When we first opened, we didn't use the term restaurant concept or that we said we were a dining project because we wanted to look at it more like a like a studio or something where we're trying to learn. So it's always rooted in that. So that means like we're not dogmatic about things. We're always taking science and other empirical information that we have and putting that together to to be a more sustainable restaurant, whether that's how we cook or how we treat our staff and their lifestyle or the way we treat ourselves. amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome
1: to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned
0: culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel.
1: Welcome, Flavor Explorers, to another exciting episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. And today, we have a truly exceptional guest joining us we are thrilled to have the incredibly talented and innovative chef Rob Ruba, the force behind the acclaimed restaurant Oyster Oyster in Washington, D.C. Since the recording of this episode, Chef Ruba has been awarded the prestigious Outstanding Chef James Beard Award, and we couldn't be more proud. In today's episode, we'll dive deep into Chef Ruba's journey from his childhood in South Jersey, to his experiences working under renowned chefs like Gordon Ramsay and Guy Savoy. We also discuss his time spent abroad, the opening of his first restaurant, Hazel, in 2016, and his recent transition to plant-based cooking and sustainable practices at Oyster Oyster. As we explore these fascinating topics, Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at flavorsunknown.com to stay updated on all things Flavors Unknown and receive exclusive content from our show. Hi, Chef. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very excited to have you on the show. I'm
0: excited to be here too. (laughs) Very good.
1: (laughs) I'm glad that I'm I'm coming for you know, a book signing in Washington, DC, and I'm able to squeeze you in. <laughs> well,
0: congratulations <laughs> this... on that. That's exciting. Thank you.
1: So you're originally from uh, South Jersey. So uh, I'm curious, is what are like the smells and the food when you close your eyes that reminds you of your childhood in, in South
0: Jersey? Yeah. So those smells, those, those memories. I grew up in a small town, a bay town, just shy of the beach. So there's a lot of salinity in the air. There's a the smell of the, the ocean, but it's also between the Pinelands. So I spent a lot of time in the forest and the woods as a kid too. So uh, kind of those earthy smells like mushrooms and stuff also resonate with me very much. Yeah. But like food-wise, it's, it's a lot of pizza and, and cheesesteaks and stuff there. <laughs> so, <That's true. laughs> surprisingly, you know, you have this bounty of nature around you. That's the culture for the most part.
1: Okay. Okay. So what kind of mushrooms at that time? Like in, uh, so, it's type?
0: really interesting. Like, I know they grow there, but I, I never found one as a kid. But matsutake mushrooms. Okay, that pine smell just reminds me so much of my childhood. Like, I will every time we get them in here. It's the season. It just takes me back to my childhood of running through the woods with my cousins and playing tag and hiding in trees and stuff. And it's really interesting how that you know smells can be this time machine for you at times in life.
1: So you haven't mentioned anything about like, you know, cooking at home, your family and so on. Are you one of those chefs that were inspired by what your mother, your own mother was cooking? Or is it like the inspiration for becoming a chef came from something else?
0: Yeah, I think it was something maybe in the back of my mind subconsciously over the years. But I didn't grow up in a household that would like cook a ton of Particular family traditional dishes or anything along the lines of that, you know, it was pretty standard American cuisine, a lot of pasta, a lot of things like that. But my uncle, who was a chef, he would cook and bring stuff to holiday events like Christmas and Thanksgiving. And those dishes just would like blow my mind. Like you make these amazing biscuits or his Caesar salad was like really made with anchovies and fresh mustard and like those flavors just popped and they were extremely exciting. But other than that, I didn't grow up with a lot of cooking around myself or or anyone so that came much later in life when I was an art student originally (laughs) I wanted to have my own apartment because at that time I was living with some other jazz musicians and I didn't want to live in the dorm so my mom was like you need to go get a job like and she's like go live with your uncle for a summer and you know cook be a pastry cook and then come back you'll be able to save enough money and I did that And that kind of changed everything for me and I never went back to art school from that. So that's when I started tasting different foods from outside of my comfort zone and kind of seeing the world of food, what it could be and kind of seeing it as a profession. And it it really kind of set me off in this catalyst of where I am today.
1: So when you said you were in art school, what kind of, you know, art and then there's any, you see any influences like a path of influence, you know, of that time into your style of cooking today or not?
0: Yeah, definitely. That's evolved a lot. I think just with maturity too. I originally went to school for graphic design and I quickly found out I didn't like that. I was in Philadelphia at the time. I just skipped class and go skateboarding and in <laughs> love park and stuff. And I just really wasn't that focused and I just wanted to paint. I really loved fine arts. So I left that school, I dropped out and I started building like my portfolio and just spending time painting and then I got a scholarship for University of Arts, and that's where I thought I was going to be a fine artist, right? I was going to just oil paint and do all these things and be a sculptor. So sure my parents were thrilled about that decision. <laughs> I was
1: just thinking about that as a dad. I'm like, mm.
0: <laughs> I think that was maybe they they were in on it, you know, and they were like, "You're going to go up north for a summer and work." Was maybe they knew I wouldn't return. I don't know. Maybe they invested this this new life for me, <laughs> but. So, yeah. And then I started in pastry. I remember my first day, my uncle's like, these are professionals. They have families. Like, you need to take this serious. And I think it was a good way to go in because there's a lot of craft and whimsy with pastry. And it made sense. And at that time, they they had this really amazing chocolate work guy that did like sugar work and chocolate sculptures. And I kind of wonder his wing. And it was, you know, it was pretty similar, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're molding with chocolate instead of clay right now. And I think that hooked me in a little bit more with the pastry element. And then kind of fast forward, like I used to, as a younger cook, I would get my notebook and I'd start sketching ideas, what these plates need to look like. Sort of in
1: plating probably.
0: Yeah, exactly. And yeah, then yeah. kind of like looking at ingredients, like colors, right? Like, oh, this goes together with this and these work in harmony and started putting things together like that and looking at those parallels at an early age of when I was cooking.
1: So how did you get from your uncle to working with Guy Savoy and uh, Gordon Ramsay?
0: Yeah, so my uncle has one of the most ridiculous cookbook collections I've ever seen. It's just like a library. It was blew my mind. And I would pull these books down. You know, I'm still very green. I don't really know anything about the food world except for Emeril Lagasse on TV and stuff. And I'd pull these books down. And I would, my mind would just be blown. You know, he had all Charlie Trotter's books and he had Charlie Trotter's meat and game. And I pulled that down. I opened up to this duck dish and I was like, that's amazing. I want to do that. I need to do that. One out, I went to the local butcher. I was like, I need a duck. He's like, I only have a frozen one. I was like, give it to me. I bought this frozen duck. I go home. I have like a pizza box laid out on table, not even a cutting board and a big knife. And I'm ready to try to carve into a frozen duck. And my uncle came in and was like, what the hell are you doing? And then he was like, put it back in the fridge. It needs to thaw out. And the next day he showed me, like we broke it down and we like confit the legs and we roasted the breast. And, and then we made a stock out of that. And he started talking to me about like Peking duck and how like you go out and get this whole dinner of this and everything. And like, I was like, wow, there's a lot to food. There's a lot of history to this. There's so many techniques. It's, Overwhelming. I feel like, yeah, it's overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. And so I really dove into those books and was really excited. And I realized I wanted to do savory. I didn't want to do pastry anymore. I want to do that. At the time I was kind of working the pastry station at this steakhouse that was in the casino, and I'd watch all the fire and the guys grilling and all this. And I was like, I want to do that. Right. <laughs> so I had left and I went quickly to another school. That's my third school. I went to a, a little culinary school at a community college. I was there for about six months and started working with some really talented chefs that were all coming from Philadelphia at the time. They would bring me in like the French laundry and like Eric Repair's book. And they would like talk about all this stuff. And after work, we'd have beers and they'd talk about, you know, oh, I was working the line and this happened and chef was yelling. And it just was like this magical world to me. And like, I don't even know if I liked the drinking part. I just wanted to be there for the stories, right? I wanted to be there for that adventure. And then I realized I was learning more with these guys than I was at school. So I dropped out of that school too. So that's three schools, three-time dropout. Just want to tell everybody that <laughs> you can make it too.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You can still be like a James Beard award nominee <laughs> even if you drop out of school. Yeah, it just,
0: you know, it wasn't for me. I, I'm I like experience. I like to be there and get my hands dirty and I think I just learn better that way. So those those chefs really helped push that that mindset. So, I was working at another restaurant and I remember opening the New York Times. And there was this whole article about how Gordon Ramsay was coming to New York City. And I saw the guy, there's, it looked like there's 30 people in the kitchen. You know what I mean? And they all had their white little toques on, their blue aprons, very uniform driven. And it just looked amazing to me. And I was like, all right, I'm moving to New York. I need to do this like career change. I need to, at this point, I've been involved maybe four or five years cooking with pastry and then savory. And I needed to, I needed to push myself. I was like, I need to do this. So as cliched as is, I think it was just what people were normally paid by the week then it was like $300. I took my last paycheck, a duffel bag of clothes. I got on a bus. I called a friend who happened to be working in New York too, slept on his couch, started staging around New York to get jobs. And I landed that job at the London with Gordon Ramsay.
1: You did? As a wow. told me.
0: <laughs> and I had no idea what I was getting into. I remember it was like the first kitchen had you know carpeted mats on the floor, and they were vacuuming during service. And you know everything was so clean and precise, and communication. And I mean, it was it was rigid. I mean, there was yelling; sure. it was very militant at sure. times. But um, it really gave me the discipline I think I needed as an individual, just in life in general. You know, I was kind of misled and very free spirited at the time didn't really have a lot of direction. You know, I, I think I was playing playing the idea of being a chef instead of becoming a chef. You know, I was like reading books and trying to emulate them and rather than living that life. So uh, that restaurant was was huge for me. It was a is a big stepping stone. And I've met some of the greatest friends there and that are now amazing chefs too. And it's just important that I, I went through that career change.
1: So what did you learn there? Like like the discipline? Because it seems that the phase before was almost emulated from like your artist's mindset that was liking like the creative aspect of being a chef and then when you were working on London and Gordon Ramsay, it was about like the repetition and make sure like the consistency and and delivering day after day correct like
0: what yeah. it no, is it, to become exactly. a chef I think prior to that I was kind of Working to the beat of my own drum, you know, I was the artist, right? And now I'm the apprentice under the artist and I'm trying to do things their way. And you realize the stakes are higher, that repetition of doing it over and over and over again, the consistency of it. And just kind of like at that level of precision too and and taste, just food I've never cooked before as well. (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) It's just really exciting to work with such amazing quality ingredients too. How long did
1: you stay there? I
0: was there for... A year I would have stayed longer, but my girlfriend at the time now my wife was was moving and I was madly in love and I chose love over a job. Okay. <laughs> I don't regret it for a day, but
1: you, you choose your wife like, versus <laughs>
0: Gordon <laughs> Renzi. <Ramsey>? Okay. <Yeah. laughs> Sorry, Gordon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then and so that's after you went to Savoy, then?
0: Yeah, we moved. We, we drove cross-country. We ended up in Los Angeles for a minute. And then a friend of mine told me, like, oh, Guy Savoie is hiring. You should go.
1: Uh, I like when you say Guy Savoy. I like, and not
0: Savoy. That's yeah. what I usually hear from <laughs> a lot of,
1: you know, American friends.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I'd get in trouble if I pronounced it that way at yes. work, right? <laughs> Especially when you work with yeah uh, there. And I mean, that was that was really fun. That was a cool experience. I mean, it was right around when the recession hit. So they had made cuts where normally that kitchen would have been maybe two or three call per per chef de partie, and the call-me's were gone. So you get hired as a chef de partie, and like you really had to push because. And you it was have,
1: in. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it was in Los Angeles, or it Las was Las Vegas. In, in Las yeah. Vegas, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So we went to LA, and then we got the call yeah, about these it, Vegas man. jobs opening up, and we went out there instead. So we get into that restaurant. Like I said, it was a real push. But it gave me an opportunity to learn a lot more. Like if you were working the meat station there, you were you were making the veal stock. You were making all the sauces. You were doing all the butchering. And then at night, you were cooking all those proteins. So you got to see the whole realm of things, which is really exciting. It was a tight-knit team. At that time, I was trying to get three stars. The Michelin Guide was in Vegas at the time. And... Um, I think Robuchon was the only one that had three stars, but in, in France he's had three stars since the eighties. So I think he was like, "What's going on?" So he was coming a lot, and it was a really cool experience because normally with these restaurants, when chefs have multiple locations, they're not really there anymore, right? So to actually have him be there and his presence and his executive team from from Paris coming over as well and kind of working with us was really How was the really pressure
1: amazing. though because if they were the goal was to achieve. You know, the multiple stars for Michelin. So I'm guessing that has an impact on the day Two Day and what you, you guys had to deliver, correct?
0: Yeah. I know I'm talking all romantic about it, but it was definitely stressful. Yeah. Um, there's you know, we were just talking before we started here. It's like I don't drink coffee anymore. But then I those were like seven, eight espresso days, you know, just pounding coffee, head down, just working hard, sweating all night, just pushing yourself, pushing your team around you, getting, you know, yelled at. Never really abusive. That kitchen wasn't in that type of yelling. It was more commanding than demanding. And I always appreciated that. But I mean, it was hard. I mean, there's definitely times where you would think you made the best sauce ever and you put it up for tasting and chef's like, no, make it again. And you're like, I haven't like 35 minutes, 40 minutes before service starts. Like it took me all day to do this. And you're just like scrambling to do it. And I know, but it, it helps build your palate, you know, definitely. But the biggest thing I got from that was, like, while, there was very humble ingredients that were, like, elevated and cooked very well to the fact that, like...
1: Like what, for instance? Can you give an example?
0: Like on the, you know, we'd have a dish, classic, with, like, bordelaise, bone marrow, filet, but then you would cook a piece of paleron with it, right? Which is, like, a relatively cheaper cut that you can braise, right? And you learn how to cook that very well. That was a side piece with, like, braised carrots. And that's something you could take with you if you just opened the restaurant with your wife or a small restaurant. You could cook that aspect of it and still be a successful chef. You don't need the filet to make a great dish, right? You know, the vegetables were always really appreciated, cooked with a lot of cabbage and potatoes (laughs) and things like that. Or you would do uh, a skate wing, but then you would stuff it with caviar or something like that. But you were learning how to cook those ingredients very well. Like I learned, you know, roasting all kinds of birds but those techniques I could do with just a chicken, right? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't need to use a pintot every time, right? Like okay. I can use just a really so good chicken. So it was both
1: about like learning those like basic techniques that you can apply that are versatile that you can apply to something else. But at the same time, it would be maybe some simple techniques and so on, but how to elevate a specific ingredient.
0: That, exactly. Correct? Exactly. That the ingredient itself, you have to start with a great ingredient and good technique. Because you could buy a gradient ingredient, have bad technique, and it's not going to be good. Or you could buy a really lousy ingredient, have great technique, and it'll be pretty good.
1: <laughs> right? What no, was I, the main difference in style between Guy Savoy and, uh, and Gordon
0: Ramsay? I would say a little, maybe a little less, it's hard to say, like less modern refinement. Like, I think there was refinement to the plates, but I think at Gordon's, it was still like little things on plates. You know, it was a little more modern, a little more in the time. And Gisawa and still felt like a little more, we were in the, the 90s still a little bit, which was, which was cool. You know, like it was more like the sauce's boss, you know, like a lot of sauce on the plate where Gordon's was more precious, I guess. Like okay. equally very high end restaurants. Just one was a little more precious than the other. I think. Yeah.
1: And the other one was still influenced by the like the traditional French. I exactly. Say, for a ways of cooking. So, wow. Did you go and adventure outside of the US after that? Then when you went into, you know, Japan, France, Spain, and so on, that was...
0: Yeah, I worked a little bit more around the country. I worked in Chicago for a bit. And then when I went back to New York, I kind of didn't really know what i wanted to do and i started doing some like consulting things which led to me going to japan for a bit with them because they were opening this japanese restaurant and that really changed things for me a lot because i i always enjoyed japanese cuisine but i think experiencing it here then experiencing it like we spent a couple of weeks in tokyo and then time in kyoto and just eating like full kaiseki meals and and going to the markets and just seeing sure. street food extremely sure. seasonal food too like i mean really seeing it celebrated with simplicity was was something that i think now is driving what i do i don't think our food is is japanese but focusing on that seasonality and like really embracing an ingredient and and letting it showcase throughout the menu that had a lot of impact on me I had the opportunity with that same restaurant. I went to France for a while, went back to Guisevois, spent a day in the kitchen there, eat there, all that, which is really cool. It was like a little homecoming for me. And then kind of experienced that too and seeing that like that real, it's like a different respect. Like we have farmers markets here, but it's just like the way seasonality matters. Like you go to a restaurant, it was in early spring, and just seeing like asparagus on almost like every menu and knowing it was local and knowing it was fresh. Because if they didn't do that, you'd probably get shamed on you know? where were you <laughs> like, in,
1: in France it was in Paris or it was yeah like, just uh,
0: in, in Paris, Paris. I, okay. I didn't go anywhere outside which I regret but I'll get back
1: <laughs> <laughs> when you find the time <laughs> and and then you went to Spain too correct
0: yeah time? Spain was earlier in my earlier on my career I went to Spain and that changed things for me too because it was kind of like the height of El Bulli I mean I applied every year to be a stage there and it never happened. You know what I mean? But I was Sweet. like obsessed with it. It just like I never got the call back. But like it was like the height of that and just going there and and thinking, you know, we were in we were in Barcelona. We were in I spent I was young. I spent like a week in Ibiza too, which was really exciting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's another podcast. Yeah, that's another <laughs> podcast for us for sure.
0: <laughs> and uh, I also then we spent time in the in the south in Granada. And kind of seeing that difference, you know, like when I was in Granada, it was more classic, classic dishes. Like we're eating paella and going to see what tapas is there compared to what we consider here. And eating just like really delicious, simple food. And then seeing the very modern stuff when we were more north kind of showed me that like tradition. And then seeing that tradition being replicated in these modern restaurants it just wasn't whimsical stuff. There was like, there was a history lesson being told through this food. And that was really exciting, too. And I think just getting outside of your bubble is one of the most important things for any cook. I don't really care if you like the cuisine, where you're going or not, but just getting outside and meeting different people, seeing different foods, seeing how different cultures, how they have they mesh with cuisine and, and life and art is, is really exciting. And it changed your whole perspective on food, right?
1: So, So if Japan influenced you in a way that you were mentioning about this impact of seasonality, you know, the idea of applying this like across, you know, the menu because of the season and the specific ingredient. What did France or Spain, you know, how did it in, impact you?
0: I mean, France, I think is that's majority of my training was that, right? And then to actually be there and see so many cooks, like that's just the way it is. It's not like for me, I had to seek out those restaurants, right, to work there, but just to see that in every place and just see that that's a culture and like, this is the way, this is how we do things is kind of said like, cool. Like that's how I want to run my restaurant too. Like, I really, I know a lot of folks will talk down about like the original brigade system. And I think like there are problems with it and like my kitchen's rather small now, but like the point that a chef de partie comes in and they, from start to finish, do a dish and understand the full like process and how ingredients work and have that appreciation for it and really developing a skill set and a craft is extremely important. And it's something that I think that's lost in a lot of restaurants here is because you come in as a line cook at 3.30, 4 o'clock. Someone's already prepped everything for you. You're, you're complaining about how they prepped it, but you didn't do it yourself. And then you're kind of just what I like to call like a line jockey all night. You're just reheating stuff that's already been done, right? Like you don't really understand the full process. And vice versa, that that prep person doesn't know that maybe the mistakes they made are affecting something at night, and that rarely do they cross paths to have that communication as well. So I think that really developing cooks is important, and it's something I try to instill into everybody here. I was like, you're going to learn how to actually cook, right? Like start to finish. We're going to work with carrots for this season, and you're going to learn Everything you can do with a carrot, you're gonna learn how to peel it correctly, how to roast it correctly, how to tell the sugar content, mm-hmm. like really use all your senses with your food and I think that's something we're kind of missing here and it's it's getting better, you know what I mean there's a lot more chefs that are extremely passionate about food. this young generation's really driving that where it doesn't have to be super long days, but you gotta put that effort in
1: What happened that suddenly you switch. You know, from eating protein like meat, you know, animal protein into becoming vegetarian.
0: So I had this restaurant, Hazel, Hazel. which was my first restaurant as like a a chef with a restaurant group. And That was in 16, right? Yeah, in 2016, we opened that. And, you know, I was really into storytelling, like my personal story. Hazel is my grandmother. That was her name that was on the door. And I told you that lovely story about me with that duck with my uncle. So we wanted to do like a homage to that at that restaurant. So we had this big duck dinner that you could order, come out Lazy Susan. It was like duck prepared six ways, you know, pork ribs, beef tartare. Like we have all these great dishes. And at the same time, I was dabbling with some some vegan dishes. And I really always enjoyed vegetables. Like all my days off, like where do you want to go eat? Like who's got good vegetables? Like that's what I want to eat. But That restaurant was known for its meat. And one day I was just like, we were using a local farm to do these pork ribs. And I started, we were having a hard time keeping up with the demand. So we had switched over to like a larger purveyor. I started calculating like how many pigs are we using a day, right? And the number at this point, I don't remember, but it was just like, that's crazy. Like, (laughs) really? (laughs) I mean, we're selling easily 50 orders of these ribs a night. It's like, that's not sustainable. Like, I mean, if I was doing perhaps a whole hog restaurant or something like that, sure. that's a different story. Where You know, maybe we only have four orders of this Got one it. tonight. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you
1: didn't have like a shocketry program or whatever, no. butchering. stuff. So exactly. You were not bringing like the whole animal or half of the animal.
0: Besides the yeah. duck, no. And just start then to look deeper into all the ingredients. Like, where are we sourcing our vinegar from? Like, what other waste is here? And it was kind of like this existential moment for me where I felt, I don't know, a bit lost as a chef. I was a little concerned about like where our industry was headed in terms of waste, our carbon footprint, the sustainability of restaurant, just not within the food, but our own bodies and mentality as chefs. You know, where it's a hard business and we're not really given any direction of what we're supposed to do when we hit a certain age and we physically can't be in the restaurant every day anymore. And then it just hit me I just didn't want to eat, eat anymore I was like I want to do I want to do vegetables I'm kind of over this and it was really really simple and surface level decision in the beginning and I left left hazel and start talking to my business partner now max max color who's a great friend and and been very supportive of this project and we start talking more about sustainability and I look at like original sketches of this menu for oyster oyster and like we had no idea what we were talking about. Like it's always this growing thing with sustainability, you know. Like I was like, "Oh, we're gonna do plants," and I had like avocado on the menu and things like that. <laughs> which, and then we focused in on the Mid Atlantic more, and you start chipping away and chipping away, yeah. and, you, yeah. you, and that restriction itself made so much more creativity. Putting those putting those boundaries up. So now it's been since twenty. 2018 2017 i turned vegetarian 2018 i left hazel which was weird a weird time to be in a restaurant that's known for its meat and like you're not eating it but you still have this responsibility to taste things and then spit them out and you know this team's like what's going on with this guy but then we we it was
1: the concept and the name of your mother and everything so the restaurant closed, you know, after when
0: no, they they continued, and okay. I I think they did really well. They hired another chef, okay, who took it in a, another direction, which I think is important, and I think it was really cool. And then the pandemic hit, and you know, and that's kind of like where we were too. You know, we did the build out, we're getting ready, It's twenty twenty, we're about two weeks away from getting all of our final permits and everything and oyster oyster remember. for oyster yeah. oyster yeah. yeah so we're we're here at oyster oyster it's 2020 we're we're getting ready to open and uh, the news is it's, it's breaking out everywhere and the mayor puts the halt on all indoor dining and we're, we're like what do we do what do we do we don't have our name out there yet we've we've never we've never opened our doors we're in this really weird situation we thought Maybe it's going to blow over in a week, you know? <laughs> Maybe it's like, you know, we've heard like sure. Ebola's coming. Yeah. And then like mm-hmm. a month later, it yeah. doesn't happen, right? And nope, this happened. <laughs> we all yeah. know it happened. So we, we had to shift and pivot and try to stick to our ethos and do a bunch of crazy things I never thought I'd do food-wise out of this restaurant. But uh, yeah, we, we were like a bagel pop-up for a minute. We did pizzas. We did... Mushroom cheesesteaks was really hard because we're a restaurant that's built around sustainability. And we're like, okay, well, we only can use compostable packaging, can't use any plastic. So we're kind of limited what we can put in sure. there because there's containers. At
1: the beginning, there was not all the solutions that exist no. today. You
0: know? so. <laughs> so that was stressful alone, just like sourcing these things because I wanted to be true to that. And it wasn't just about making dollars at that sure. point, right? And then fortunately, we were able to open indoors on June 15th of Mm -hmm. 2021. And then kind of the rest is history with that.
1: (laughs) We are in oysters, oysters, you know, today. And can you describe a little bit the the concept of like the restaurants and, you know, the style of cooking that you're doing here?
0: Yeah, so... With Oyster Oyster, the main concept first and foremost is always being a sustainable restaurant, a restaurant that's thinking about permanence and kind of a long path. And when we first opened, we didn't use the term restaurant concept or that we said we were a dining project because we wanted to look at it more like a, like a studio or something where we're trying to learn, learn more information for the grand, the grand scheme of things, the final piece. So it's always rooted in that. So that means like we're not dogmatic about things. We're always taking science and other empirical information that we have and putting that together to to be a more sustainable restaurant, whether that's how we cook or how we treat our staff and their lifestyle or the way we treat ourselves. Do you
1: have They're some example goals. of some princ- sustainability yeah.
0: principle? Uh, the thing we figured it? out was we were going to use zero single-use plastics in the restaurant. So cling film, plastic wrap, done, gone, right? Because it can't be recycled and it's a ton of plastic we use in restaurants every day. But that was a quick one that we eliminated. And then soon to follow that were sous vide bags. There are some compostable ones being developed now, which is kind of interesting because there's a lot of benefits to, to that technique. Just storage space, waste, et cetera. But using a bag and throwing it in the trash just seems wasteful for us. So we eliminated that as well. And that's a technique I used for my whole career up until now, you know, so throwing that away. Large pot blanching, like classic, right? Like I'm going to boil this big pot of water with salt and blanch my asparagus real quick. It's a waste of resource kind of at this point for us. It's a technique that works, but with the problems we're seeing with water resources, we need to be mindful of that. So uh, we have a rationale oven that on a steam setting uses something close to like 10 times less water for an hour cycle than one pot of water would use okay. to boil. So it's a lot more efficient. We are closed Sundays and Mondays, so our staff always has the same two days off. We're open only for dinner, so there's never a brunch shift or a double that we're going to ask you to do. We we have a, a lot of fun here. We have a very open policy. Was it easy
1: to make those decisions from looking from a, like a business, you know, standpoint and like you know to establish those rules?
0: I, I think starting... between
1: you know like personal. You know, convenience and, you know, that we all love to have, but as well, you have a business to run. So,
0: yeah, I think originally, probably not, but the more we dove into what we wanted this place to be and what we wanted to stand for, it became easier. And I think being kind of on pause for a while with COVID in the beginning really let us reflect tremendous amount on what we wanted and what we wanted our ethos to be and what the lifestyle of our team because i mean like happy people just make good food you Mm -hmm. know what i mean like and happy servers are are the best right and one of the earlier things was i mean you can see it's a very open floor plan here Mm -hmm. it's very inviting was we wanted to like not say front of the house back of the house we are just one house right and get rid of that culture our our kitchen team runs food as much as any server would. And they're at the table talking about the food. Therefore, they're as much of a server. So we do a service charge at the restaurant instead of depending on tips. And everybody makes out really well with that, you know? Kind of eliminating that opportunity for someone who's dining with us to decide what someone's worth is, right? Like we've just eliminated that and hopefully trickle down more. But yeah, those decisions originally, I think when you're building a restaurant from ground up are a lot easier than already having an established business and trying to like throw a wrench in there and be like, oh, we're going to change everything. That's that's a lot more difficult. We're lucky we decided on a smaller footprint in terms of square footage of a restaurant. So we didn't need- How many seats a do you have overhead. here? We have 28 to 30 seats, depending on the night. Small footprint, but it, it gives us the ability to be very genuine and have real connection with our guests as well. And same thing for the team. If someone needs- A night off or whatever—it doesn't really affect the machine. Like someone can jump in and take care of that. I've always made it. I'm like the tournament. Like if you're off, I'm working your station. I'm not asking another cook to pick up. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's just my love of cooking. Like I'll probably die at the stove. I don't know. (laughs) 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 Just I can't help it. I just I really like to like to cook. Yeah. And how the
1: the sustainability principle applied to like the produce and Products and you know the, the like the access to certain ingredients and you know partnership with I don't know
0: purveyors and no no exactly that's the other part of it I'm gonna digress all the time so thank no, you no, for reeling fine. me back no, no. in <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I mean another big aspect of that is working with local foods so that's local farms local purveyors and when I say like local purveyors, I really mean local, not just a, you know, when we serve a beer that's local, it's being made from local grain and local hops, right? Like you could own a brewery across the street and buy grain from wherever and you get coined a local brewery, right? So what does local even mean? All the farms we work with go under the guise of being organic, regenerative, or work with biodynamics, right? Like we don't want people are spraying pesticides or anything like that on the on the food that we serve. And then that goes into being extremely seasonal at the restaurant and being here in the Mid-Atlantic. We also want to, you know, we also dance this line between the South and the North. And a lot of times when you see Mid-Atlantic, it's kind of like Southern influenced food, which which has a long history. And a lot of the ingredients we use are are because of that. But we wanted to kind of redefine that. And we also want to talk about like indigenous foods and ingredients that weren't tapped because of people coming here and kind of being like, get the hell out of here. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of damage to our local food system by not like coming in and kind of washing away indigenous people. So we want to look at those. Like we have spice bush and Lindera here that we use instead of cinnamon or pepper on our menu and start chipping away more and looking at like sweet Sicily to use that instead of like parsley when it's out of season. Yeah. It's really about that. And, and, dialing down like we don't use olive oil at the restaurant we don't use any citrus because these ingredients don't exist here but we're lucky to find a cold-pressed canola Mm -hmm. oil that's made in pennsylvania that's really great product you know i mean and that their oil gets recycled and then turned into like a biofuel you you push like
1: the concept of local to the extreme yeah
0: yes i mean one thing we are phasing out as we're speaking this week was we were buying sugar from this company Nella, which is really fantastic. It's like unrefined uh, sugar, really beautiful stuff. But we're, we're just eliminating that because it doesn't grow here. So we're going to start just sweetening only with honey and maple syrup and sorghum. So that's like a new, new thing for us. It's like a new learning curve because now anything that said sugar, it's like, oh, does this affect the texture now? Sure. The flavor, like our breads and stuff like that. So it's like a new, it's always a new journey for us. Like it's another way. But we feel like these restrictions and as we cut down are really going to defy what mid Atlantic means because now we're developing a flavor style. So you went back to how did Spain influence as like, you think you have like pimenton and paprika and like, that's used a lot and hamon, And these are, these are the flavors, right? These are the ingredients. This is the culture that built around that. And now we're working with that similar toolkit here. That's like these limited ingredients, but they're, defining a flavor profile so maybe all of our pastries do have like a hint of maple to it but that's what's here that's what we're cooking with right so you're not going to get a passion fruit dessert here it's not going to happen but to roll back on that there is a passion fruit that grows here in virginia it's not as good as the tropical one but it does grow here so
1: so again it's good it seems that it goes back as well to your passion about storytelling correct because It's it's part of that concept of sustainability, but there is as well a great story that you can tell, you know, the customers here, as well as like media, I'm guessing. And there's a great connection with what you know people are expecting nowadays when it comes to you know the culinary world.
0: Yeah, definitely. What does that even that mean to, to our guests? When we talk about sustainability, one thing we always put in place was we were not going to um, hit people over the head with that. And we have to tell the story through the food rather than standing there at the table telling them, like, how do we weave in that story?
1: Sure. Because they they are here to have a good time. Yeah. It's still escapism, right?
0: They're here to have a good time. But like, can we do it that way? So is it ways like we have a dish right now that happens to have potatoes in it. And we've taken the skins, roasted those and made a sauce out of it. So when we're saucing at the table table side with this roasted potato skin, we say like, you know, we like to have that zero food waste mentality here in the kitchen. And we've made this lovely sauce out of just little nuggets of information without hitting in one over the head. And hopefully it's more of a cerebral thing. Like they leave and they're like, wow, we just had an amazing meal, just plants, Mm -hmm, mushrooms, mm -hmm. maybe an oyster, depending if you want one or not. And then it helps push the narrative further. Like the next time they go to the restaurant, and they're looking at a list of appetizers. Maybe they pick the veggie one instead of going with the crudo or something, you know? And and that's all it is, those little steps of progress. And we hope we just instill that in our, our guests to think a little bit differently about food when they leave here. Think about the seasons more. Maybe they now they're like, I never knew I could cook celery root like that. And they go to the farmer's market and they see this little white orb sitting there on the table and they're like, all right, that's tasty. We're going to cook that this week. And they diversify their their vegetable knowledge. That's one thing about the restaurant too. We don't we don't deliver a menu in the beginning of the meal. We give that to the guests at the end of the meal because I feel guests have already these preconceived ideas of what vegetables are. They're overboiled asparagus or squishy mushrooms, and if they see it, they're they're going to be like, actually, I don't eat this or I don't eat that. And we. We're not trying to force you to eat it, but we want you to have an open mind. And if you don't know what's coming, you can't build up that anxiety about an ingredient. So we surprise a lot of guests. And at the end of the meal, they'll come up to the, the counter and be like, oh, wow, I didn't know I loved carrots that much. Or "Or I thought I hated mushrooms. We hear that so much. And I, I feel like that's a real win for us. You
1: know? And I think that's a great point that you are mentioning because like people, generally speaking, where you think about it's all going to be vegan or veg- you know, vegetarian? You know, it's not going to be exciting from a like a flavor standpoint. So, how do you approach like the cooking on you know vegetables and in order to you know which techniques are you applying in order to to bring you know flavors forward?
0: It is tricky, right? I, I feel like a lot of a lot of guests, a lot of folks think. It's going to be salads, right? Or just a block of tofu or something like that. You
1: know, the fat coming from the meat, you know, contributes as well to the overall, you know, taste. And, you know,
0: so. And that ties back into us cooking what we're saying local food, right? Like you could go to India and have the most amazing vegetarian food you want. You can go to to Vietnam and eat delicious vegetarian food as well, right? Like that's instilled in their culture. But here, from kind of like a Western perspective, it's, there isn't much. Right. And for the longest time I battled with one to be a vegetarian, but I always knew I'd be stuck on garmage. I would never get to be a meat cook or something if I became a vegetarian earlier. And I think those experiences I'd never regret because they really do apply to how we're cooking now. Like all the different techniques I've learned from roasting various game birds and meat and stuff really do apply because you develop how you, you learn how to develop layers of flavor. Right. So, you know, we don't sometimes you get a carrot on your plate here and it's been cooked like four different preparations before it hits you, you know what I mean? And really concentrating things, but texture is something that isn't really thought about. Like you think, Oh, I'll use a carrot as an example because it's something everyone's eaten at least. And it's not that strange as it gets roasted as its whole form. Right. But for us, it's maybe we shape it really thin and then, it back together and then roast it. And then you have a really soft exterior and still kind of a crunchy center or vice versa. The center can be really soft and that outside can still have some crunch. And I think those are the interesting aspects of eating or, or textures as well as flavor. And that's something we really try to try to figure out. So sometimes where how we do things is very different. Like we do an eggplant schnitzel eggplant cutlet on the menu in the summertime. And that's, cooked, and pressed, and glazed, and grilled before it's even breaded and fried. So, (laughs) But you end up with this super creamy, smoky texture in the middle of the eggplant. You dig into it, and you get the crunchy exterior. So how
1: do I do that at home? Can I do that at home? Yeah, you can do it at home.
0: I just just did it. I made eggplant parmesan for my kids two days ago with the same technique, and they love it. (laughs) So how do it? Can you... Yeah, so we would do is we we remove the skin, we cut it long ways, we put it in an oven... We have a combination oven here. So we do like 50-50 steam and heat. So it's kind of like slowly cooking it. But at home, you can put a little water in your in your sheet tray and kind of let it steam and roast at the same time, like a very shallow braise, if you will. After that, take it out. When you When you touch the eggplant, it'll still look white or gray. But when you touch it, it'll look like it's bruising because it's absorbed enough liquid now. And it'll kind of leave these dark marks. You know you're in a good place. Then you want to press it in the fridge you can use two trays or whatever let it get pressed and then we like to brush it with like a nice savory glaze made from like koji and like some maple syrup and then we'll grill it on our grill let it chill again and then pretty much standard breading procedure is what we do after that and then pan fry and it's delicious
1: (laughs) absolutely i know what i'm going to do this summer Chef, I'm you know I'm looking at the time. We have been talking like for you know forty five minutes already, and uh, it's very really interesting. But I'm I'm going to you know before we finish switch to rapid fire questions. So you and I are going into a tasting tour in Western DC. So what are like the five spots that you are going to
0: bring me to outside of Oyster Oyster? We're just going to eat here five times. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> No real quick. we'll go to Albi. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll hit up Lutes. We'll get some oysters at Old Epic Grill. I'm gonna take you a little bit out of the city real quick to Del Rey. we're gonna get pizza at Straci pizza and it's another great place. They're all great, right everybody. Uh, we're gonna get some more pastries from Salu. from Salu
1: okay yeah okay yes. Yeah, it's in front of us here. I haven't had the chance to try, but I will after we are done like recording. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Guilty pleasure food? What is the guilty pleasure food when you are vegetarian?
0: Vegetarian chicken nuggets. Vegetarian chicken nuggets. It's guilty. <laughs> <laughs> it's guilty. Really? No. I, it's uh, it's all processed that. food still. I don't know. Yeah, it's that or like a lot of French fries, I guess.
1: Love uh, Okay. A lot of French fries. Okay. But not with tallow then. No. no <laughs> you have to be mindful of what you're doing. Oh, it could be vegan ice cream, I
0: guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'll eat a whole pint of that. You which are one? right. Which, vegan which ice cream? Flavor, yeah, but
1: which flavor now?
0: Oh man. Tell me oh. which one that you're Van Leeuwen makes like yeah. this mint chocolate chip and I'll oh, okay. just eat a whole thing of that. So good.
1: Okay. Very good. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? I mean, the French Laundry. Yeah, yeah the French that. Laundry was yeah, like... That's your generation. That's my generation. Yes, You've yeah. never
0: seen anything like that before. Yeah. After that, it's not really a cookbook, but it's Down and Out, Paris to London. That's a cook. That's a book I always go back to. It takes place in kitchens. And anytime I feel like my life's rough in the kitchen or I think things are tough, I, I do that one. And uh, geez, who else? I'll say the original Noma book. That was like oh, yeah. really inspiring too yeah
1: and have you seen the new one yeah That's pretty, pretty cool okay. yeah, yeah. what is your biggest pet peeves in the
0: kitchen disorganization and crumbs I can't stand crumbs like <laughs> I just walk around with my finger and I pick crumbs up all day long <laughs> because I just can't stand unclean <laughs> surface areas like it drives me wild
1: okay last questions beside the classics you know mustard and ketchup and Mayo, whatever. What condiments, spices, dressings do you like to have on hand at home?
0: Always have soy sauce all the time. It's just such a great thing. What else? Because you already named like the ketchup. Like I use ketchup. I'm going to still say ketchup because I like to cook a lot of Indian food at home and it's like a secret ingredient. Like I can add that and get like tang. And I don't always have tomato paste and it, it really helps me just like make some dishes sometimes. I like to add it to things that just need a little acid kick and some sweetness, right? Just tomato agrodolce, dolce, basically, is all ketchup <laughs> It's pretty good. And then just really good quality vinegar. I think you need to have good okay. vinegars. Yeah. Hot sauce, maybe? No?
1: Really.
0: Yeah, I yeah? definitely, I mean, we, we keep like a good chili crunch in the house. That's always a good one to ah, throw yeah. on things. <laughs> so, That's
1: nice, yeah. crazy <laughs> yeah. chili crunch. Yeah. That's like the, the, the big trend nowadays. Chef, thank you very much. And again, congratulations for your nomination of, you know, the James Beard for 2023. So, semi-finalists,
0: let's keep our fingers crossed. our fingers crossed. Yes, exactly. And congratulations to you on the book. Oh, thank you.
1: Yes, I appreciate it. And that wraps up another enlightening episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. A huge thank you to our distinguished guest, Chef Rob Ruba of Oyster Oyster in Washington, D.C., for sharing his insights, experiences, and passion for sustainable plant-based cooking. We are sure you've been inspired by his dedication to creating innovative, delicious dishes that are not only good for our taste buds, but also good for the environment. As we say goodbye, don't forget to visit flavorsunknown.com to subscribe to our newsletter for updates and more from the world of flavors unknown. And of course, if you're ever in the area, be sure to pay a visit at Oyster Oyster in Washington, D.C. to experience the award-winning culinary magic of Chef Rubas firsthand. Until next time, flavor explorer, keep discovering new tastes and expanding your culinary horizon. And until then, keep in mind that the people who like to eat are always the best people.
0: Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com.
1: Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.